The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspire Us. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to someone who was convicted of murder and spent 22 years in jail. And he did commit the murder. It was a gang-related murder. But the story doesn't end with my guest going to jail. In fact, an amazing transformation happened several years into his sentence. And here to tell you about that transformation is my guest, Quan Quinn. And he just might change your mind as to how you look at people with criminal pasts. Here's Quan. You know what I want to do? I want to dispel a myth. A myth that once bad, always bad. And I was a police officer for over 31 years. And in that time, I met some pretty amazing criminals, really. Some really decent human beings. And today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to one of these people. Quan spent, how many years was it, Quan, that you spent in jail? 22. 22 years. Total of 22. A total of 22 years in jail. And that was for a, a killing, a gang killing in 1999, in which Quan shot and killed a man in this gang-related incident in Hollywood, California. And he is a very different person today. Quan uh, now uh, is the author of a book called Sparrow in the Razor Wire. And on his website, I found a wonderful quote. He says, I wanted to salvage something of my life, despite my failures as a human being. Quan also operates a program called Defy Ventures, and that's a nonprofit to help individuals with criminal past transform themselves through entrepreneurship. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to Quan. And Quan, how do I pronounce your last name? Quinn. Okay. Very good. Welcome to Inspire Us, Quan. Thank you for having me. No, you're very welcome. I'm fascinated by your story. It's always nice to hear a story with a happy ending, and yours is one of those stories. I'd like to start off our podcast by asking about your past, because a lot of people don't understand what draws a person to join a gang, what draws a person to join, uh, say, terrorism. There are elements, and they're different, I suppose, for a lot of people. But largely, sometimes being drawn to a gang is looking for connection, looking for someone to accept you. And was that the case for you, Quan? Were you looking for something and you found a gang? Or how did that work out? Yeah. Um, well, I, I grew up in Provo, Utah. Um, and uh, this was right after the, we lost our country. My family had uh, relocated out here to the United States. I was just a toddler at the time. So I grew up, our family is Roman Catholic and we were Vietnamese and in Utah, it's predominantly white and Mormon. And 
you know, for the most part, there's wonderful people that live over there, but I did experience what I now know to be racism. And I never felt like I really fit in. So that kind of planted the seeds of uh, me as a, in a, as a little boy, like, you know, uh, in public, like people would poke fun at us or, or even say things to us. A really big incident happened when I was, uh, what, eight years old was when me and my brother were playing in the uh, ditches and some older kids and um, some adults, so it may, may have been like their uncles or, or their fathers, told us to go back to our country. And they, uh, we, you know, as little kids, we were, we were talking stuff back and forth. We told them to come make us and they jumped the fence, chased us down. And they, they shoved my brother down and they put, uh, put dirt in his mouth. And I stood there. My brother was like a couple years younger than me. So he's probably like six or five at the time. And I stood there. I, I didn't know what to do. So we both walked home crying. And my father, when he found out, told me, you know, you have to protect your family at all costs. Like, how could you let this happen to your younger brother? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he never brought it up again. But I from... I remember I was feeling ashamed, like I let my family down, I let my brother down, I let my father down. And that was, you know, just the beginning seeds of, okay, we, I have to protect my family against this outside group. You know, my father gets diagnosed with leukemia uh, later that year and his condition gets worse. And we moved out here to California where uh, his family lived. So this was the first time I had gone to school with Hispanics and African-Americans and Asians and even Vietnamese. But uh, even in that, I didn't feel like I fit in because there were some Vietnamese kids that told me, you know, this is when I think the first wave of the the refugees were coming over. So a lot of them didn't speak English well and I couldn't speak Vietnamese well. So of course I stuck out and they poked fun Mm. at me, said I was whitewashed, said that I wasn't Vietnamese. So I just never felt like I fit in on either side, you know? and like looking back now, I, I know as, as a little kid, there were plenty of kids just like me that, that loved me. But I think just isolated incidents that I told myself in my head and they just stuck out. And then suddenly I'm believing this narrative that I don't fit in and, and people don't like me. And so I just grew up with this little belief like that. My father passes away when I was 13. So I didn't have a father figure. No, in our, in our family particularly, nobody really talked about it. Like no one ever asked, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Mm-hmm. And we were just left to figure it out on our own. So that was right before I went into high school. You know, by that time, our family was broke on welfare. My mom uh, finally got a job and she was never home. And I just started uh, gravitating to other kids on the streets. That's really tough because, yeah, going to a school and not feeling as though you belong anywhere. And again, to be verbally attacked and called names because you're you're not associated to one group or another and kids can be cruel and did your father pass away um after his diagnosis and yeah he passed away from leukemia uh when i was 13. okay and that is at a tough age losing a parent at any age is very very difficult but at 13 when you're looking for a father figure or someone to emulate and your father's not there, I can understand how that would be very difficult for any child uh, to handle. And so what was it that made you gravitate to a gang? Uh, How did that happen? Well, uh, I get into high school, you know, I I ended up 
hanging out with some certain kids. And then one of my good friends, he had some older brothers. These guys were already, you know, a little bit more already were running on the streets. And I just liked hanging out with them. Like, uh, you know, they had cars, they had pretty women. Um, and it just began this process where we're hanging out. And then we ended up breaking into cars. And then that leads into credit card fraud and and then just my other crimes and it just goes down this path um by the time i get it into my senior year in high school uh my group of friends one of us had a uh 22 caliber gun and we had gone to a party i think a couple months before and my friend had got a the gun and there were some uh, skinhead kids at the party that had surrounded us so when he pulled out the gun all the kids ran and then people talked about like our group and suddenly for me, it perpetuated, oh man, people kind of recognize this and people kind of, it adds to our popularity at school and people were talking about it. And then it was about a couple months after that, some, those same skinhead kids had called my house and threatened to kill my uh, mom and my family. I was working at Subway at the time. My younger brother came to my work and told me that uh, some kids had threatened our family. I asked my coworker where, like if she could draw me a map of where they live. And you know, in our talk at the time, like, oh yeah, we'll just shoot them up. We'll shoot, we'll go and shoot them up. And knowing that none of us ever shot a gun, none of us have been, been involved in something like that. She draws the map and they took off. They said, we'll come back at 10 o'clock to pick you up when you get off work. Well, they left and went to a, a local arcade. They found another kid that knew where one of the skinheads lived. They ended up going over there uh, my friend went up to the house, knocked on the door, and they opened it, and he ran inside and shot three people. Fortunately, mm. all three people survived, but within a week or two, they arrested all of us, including me, uh, for conspiracy, commit murder, attempted murders. That was when I was 17, and that was right when I got thrown right into juvenile hall. So for inside the, the, the jail system, it's here in California, it's split up by race, like Asians go with Asians, Hispanics over here, Blacks over there, Whites over there. And so I was like, okay, this is your group now. Um, and a lot of them were gang members and I just took up a lot of the same gang values. Um, befriended quite a few of them. And then I, I was paroled a couple years after that. But by that time, you know, I didn't graduate high school. I did the best I could like, okay, I'll just enroll in college. But it never felt like I fit in with society after that moment. Some of my same friends that were inside that uh, from inside jail with me in juvenile hall were also home, and that became the core of our gang later on. Like we we gravitated towards each other, and it just became our gang, and then it just spiraled out of control after that, and culminating in you know I got arrested two times after that for gang violations, gun violations, and ultimately for murder in 1999. Hmm. You know, there is a progression there. We can certainly see it. And I, I, I'm quite certain that a lot of young people have similar stories, uh, gang members here. I know uh, in, in Toronto, we have a problem with, uh, with gangs and uh, young people who are just gravitating to that for a number of different reasons, as you just explained. I could see how the progression of that from being bullied and being targeted to not finding yourself fitting in in a particular group to then gravitating towards people who 
maybe provide you with that acceptance and that welcome, uh, welcomeness. And that's uh, how it can lead to what you've just described. And ultimately, in your case, it led to uh, a killing in 1999. Uh, you spent 22 years of your precious life behind bars. Can you tell us what that experience was like? And how did you change that, that heart? Because I think your heart got really angry and it really, it became a violent heart. And how did that yeah. violent heart turn into something soft? Yeah, it was uh, very violent. It became it was very angry. It's funny because I had no clue that I was angry. I never thought I was angry. I thought the angry person is the one that's screaming and yelling. But because uh, when I got quiet and I just didn't show any emotions, I thought that was normal, and I just mm. stuffed it all down. So I I commit. I commit the murder in 1999. I shot and killed another human being by the name of Min Nguyen at, uh, after uh, an altercation at a Hollywood nightclub between our gang and a different gang. We followed them on a freeway. I orchestrated following them. I think we followed them for about 20 miles before we pulled up alongside and I ended up shooting into the car, shooting and killing one person and injuring two others in that car. The next day I found out somebody died so I just got rid of my gun. Um, I told everyone in the car, don't talk about it. It was a few months after that I was arrested and they tried me for the death penalty. So I was ultimately found guilty of second degree murder only because I had got rid of evidence, only because I coached witnesses. Like under the letter of law, I, I should have been given the death penalty. So I went into prison with a 15 year to life sentence. But in the state of California at the time, it, it was the same thing as a death sentence because they were not paroling any lifers. They had not paroled a single lifer since 1977. Mm. So I just thought, okay, I, that's it, I'm washed up. And so I just carried that same mentality into prison, no remorse. Like I, I justified it in my mind thinking, okay, this is, this is something I had to do. My lifer is theirs, never, never once like, looking at my own sense of responsibility in this or, or how did this come about and never even looking at myself as somebody violent and I was extremely violent so that's how I just lived my life for about 10, 10 years into my life sentence still getting involved with the prison gangs still getting involved with contraband and, and just the whole black market of prison it was about the 10th or 12th year of my prison sentence though is when several things happened. My niece was born and I, my brother, it's my brother's daughter. And he sent in a picture of her and she looked like a spitting image of him, except that she's a girl. Mm -hmm. And it just took me back to childhood. And then I go, well, how did my life end up like this? Like me and him were just little kids and we were innocent. Like what happened here? And it started making me question. My grandfather passes away that same year. And that took me back to thinking about my father and one other thing is that I've always been a bookworm. So inside prison, I was still reading. Um, I've always been fascinated with business books and, and, and entrepreneurship. And then, but those books led me from one book to another. And I got into character development. And then one, and somehow I ended up stumbling on the books of the saints, and particularly stories about saints that had failed in some way in their lives, but yet they were able to turn things around. And I gravitated towards these, these stories. So, you know, my head became filled with, wow, how did they do this? And uh, what's going on? And so between that and just thinking of, about like 
questioning my own life and how things ended up. It was one day on the prison yard. Um, it was early in the morning. I was standing at the fence. And then I just like asked myself, like, why does prison have to be punishment? Why can't I view this as a place I can remake myself into a better person, mm. look for a way to leave a legacy in here, even if I'm supposed to die? And then I realized I could. So it was just that small shift in my thinking. It made all the difference in the world. Like, you know, the, the sun was coming up over the hills that morning. I was able to feel its warmth. Uh, in the bla little blades of grass, I could see the individual drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. <laughs> and I tell everyone, it had been chirping my whole term. And I never once heard it. But that day I heard it. And I would have to say, like, from that day, like, prison no longer was this cold, hard, harsh, ugly place. It was like a place where I felt like I could connect with other human beings. All of us were on our journeys, many of them much further along than me, and many of them perhaps not even awakened yet. But I just saw it as like, this is a journey we're all on, and we could find ourselves here. And that's how I just begin to approach each day, you know, like basically waking up each morning, like, what does the universe have in store for me to learn today? What can I make myself better in what way today? You know, that's when I began to grieve my father's death. Um, I, I, I went to go see a therapist. And what's that, 25 years later, that's when I began to grieve his death. And I realized all around me, men were also grieving their own forms of loss, whether that's family members that have moved on, family members that have died, or loved ones that have left them or just being transferred prisons and, and losing friendships that they had built up over the years. And I saw it all around me. So I actually put together a syllabus and proposed it to the prison psychologist. He loved it. And we created the prison's first ever grief and loss group. Mm. Um, and that's when I started seeing like, okay, I could actually make a difference in this world. And that just began like, I get involved with victims awareness groups. And then understanding about restorative justice principles. And then it all became a snowball effect of me being able to make a difference in, you know, the world. Like, I, look, I go, this is my little corner of the world that nobody knows about. It's forgotten and we're, we're discarded here. But I can make a difference here on this little corner. And I could help these men around me. And that's what I began to do. And then, you know, that just began, became my way of life. 2015, I went up to the parole board. And... They kind of examined like what I had been up to. I shared with how I saw things. I went into the board and owned up to the shooting and said, I committed the murder. I lied at trial. This is exactly, this is actually what happened. You know, and then they just came back and said, we feel that you are no longer a threat to society. And that's when they paroled me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, Quan, I don't know where to begin with uh, that incredible story of uh, transition to transformation, receiving a picture of your niece that opens this floodgate to new experiences, to going out and, and just recognizing the beauty around you, the sparrow in the wire, the blades of grass with dew on it, all these things, reading, your constant reading, and becoming interested in the book of saints and what they did and the difficulty they, they went through. There are so many messages in what you just said that a lot of people take for granted. For the longest time, you didn't know you were angry. 
you know, you, you always felt that anger was shouting and screaming and kicking and doing this kind of stuff. And yet you can be angry and not show it. And that just prevents your heart from growing. It really does. You just, you're angry with the world. You did a tremendous self-examination of your life and you didn't like where it was. And you moved towards making it an incredible testament to who you really are. And I applaud you for that. And you are doing so much good in the world right now to, to start that movement within the prison, you know, to get men to gather together and to share their losses and, and be vulnerable with one another. That project, I'm sure, is still going on, is it not? Well, so what happened is that the psychologists got transferred, so they shut it down without mm -hmm. a uh, staff to sponsor it, like, you know, there, there were budget cuts, so then that, that did not happen. But then seeing that made me realize where else can I start to make a difference. So even understanding like the loss of, you know, a grieving process and then applying that into other groups that I got involved with, like I was involved with this organization called the Alternatives to Violence Project, the Victims Awareness, of course, and then like getting like the men to realize like the harm that they caused and getting them to, to, to accept it. That was the, the, the challenging part because a lot of them were just like me many years, you know, just making excuses and justifying it. And then I also tied right into line with, uh, in the California prison system, when a life-term prisoner goes to the parole board, they're issued a parole hearing transcript and it's exactly what happens in there. For some reason, the culture of prison, men never shared these transcripts. Like it's almost like people hold on to it and they tell the story, they come out of the parole board, you get screwed, they were so evil in there, they'll never let any of us go home. One of my friends that we were just sitting together suddenly one day says, here, read my transcripts. He gave me seven of them. That means he had gone to seven hearings. And as I read it, it opened my eyes to when I'm reading it. And then it, I, I somehow I had this thought like, I know why you're not getting paroled. And so we sat down and we started going through, like, you know, the, the, uh, at the same time, like everything just seemed like it's, it's all pointed towards me helping and me understanding. Um, and I started coaching him like, Hey, this is where you're not owning this. This is where you are not taking any responsibility. This is where you're not making any type of amends and you haven't owned this crime. And he goes, what do you mean? I, I, I said, I did it, but I go, but you're still making an excuse of why mm. you're still making excuses in this just what's so bad if you just own this? So when people saw like, what are you and Quan doing? He tells them, oh, Quan's helping me prepare for the pro board. People thought we were crazy because they're like, how can Quan help you? He's never gone to the pro board. He's only been in prison <laughs> 10, 12 years. We've been in here 30 years. What does this guy know? Well, one of my other friends also was sitting there. He went to the pro board. He ends up with a parole date. And that's when just the floodgates open where men suddenly, oh, what? they're onto something and they started sitting down with me, but I realized they want to sit down with me because they want to go home. But my, which is fine, but my motive is, you know what? I've already found this amazing freedom in here. Let me shift their mind and their heart in these sessions without them having to know it. But then the byproduct of it is them going to parole board and owning everything. 
But I go, it's not these words I'm giving them. It's more a change of heart and mind. And that's what I want to get them to. And so that's just, you know, fumbling my way through it and understanding the what they're saying and what what's actually happening in the pro board and what they say happened. They're two different things. And I saw it over and over. And I just realized this is a human tendency to not cast ourselves in a bad light and always spin it in a way that makes it still look good. And then it made me re-examine my own life. Like, where am I telling myself this false narrative? And where am I not being honest with myself and the world and, and not being authentic? And it just so everything just started tying in together with books I was reading, men I was able to help coach. And yeah, so I think like, you know, over that time, I would say what I helped maybe nine, 10, 12 men get come suitable and go mm-hmm. home, which mm-hmm. is not an insignificant amount, but I also realized that what I understood in there gave me so much freedom. And even the men that I didn't help to go home, they also had a sense of freedom. So that was like a lot of my motivation for writing this book. Like this is where I can help out those that are left behind, to perhaps realize there's a different way of looking at this. Mm, I like that. There's a lot of things that you said that um, hit, I think, for a lot of people here. Uh, one of the things is that, yes, we do have a tendency of not wanting to be seen in a poor light. So if you're in an argument with someone, perhaps a significant other or whatever, and you don't take full responsibility for what you've said or done, you make excuses, that does not repair the relationship. In fact, it just pushes people further behind. And as you said, once you begin to take accountability, there's transformation that can take place. Another thing that you were saying is that uh, kind of hit with me is that you found freedom within the prison a place that you had been sent to be punished, you actually Mm -hmm. found a freedom and a purpose. Mm -hmm. A lot of people during COVID-19 are feeling as though they are in prison because many (laughs) cannot leave home. And, uh, you know, and instead of feeling uh, victimized and traumatized by not being able to leave home, Perhaps there are different ways of being creative, as uh, as Quan, you have uh, demonstrated. It is not your surroundings that creates your prison. It is what you think your prison is that creates your prison. Your surroundings don't have to uh, define whether you are free or whether you are imprisoned. It is what your mind tells you. Your mind found a liberation and a purpose that led you to uh, become the man that you are and to have helped so many people. And um, when you left, you started a program, you you became that entrepreneur uh, after having studied all those books on entrepreneurship. How long did it take after you uh, left prison uh, to become an entrepreneur? Was it six months? Yeah, so the the organization that I work for, Defy Ventures, like you said, it's a, it's a um, program that helps men and women with criminal histories to transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. Um, it was that that program came to our prison right before I paroled. Um, it was a pilot program, and I saw it. I go, wow, entrepreneurship! This is this is speaking my language right here, and <laughs> so I signed up for it. Um, it was weird because uh, most prison programs, all you do is just sign your name on a piece of paper and you put your prison number, and they'll call you in. You're part of the program. This one was like, you had to fill out a 30 page application, write like what, what entrepreneurship means, why your life had transformed and why you want to join the program. So everything about it just uh, resonated with me. So I was part of the program. 
I was found suitable and paroled before I even graduated from the program. I, I continued with the program out here. Six months after is when I had created my first company. It's a uh, commercial cleaning company. And uh, yeah, it's still running to this day. Mm. I have um, seven employees. Five of them are also formerly incarcerated. And I, <laughs> and I tell you, like, those are my best workers. Like, yeah. Wow. You know, that is just a beautiful uh, story of uh, transformation and of finding purpose and of action that a lot of people uh, certainly need to hear. And I hope that this podcast gets broadcasted uh, to people who may be struggling uh, with uh, taking ownership for some of the things that they've done. But wouldn't it be nice if this was uh, broadcasted in prison? I would like to ask you about that sparrow in the razor wire. Why don't you tell us what you, what prompted you to write a book? And I think I know why you picked that title, but why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, when I was writing the book, I didn't have a title at first. And it was about like 40% into the writing process when um, the story started coming together. And then it was when I was writing just that, that incident. And I go, this is the title of my book. So the sparrows in there, um, they, if in prison, because of the razor wire, uh, a lot of the sparrows, if you look closely, they're disfigured. A lot of them, like as babies, they'll land on the uh, razor wire wrong and they'll lose a limb, they'll lose a claw. Some of them are scarred. So I, after that, it was, I always noticed them after that. They just all were always like, you know what? They're scarred, they're deformed and, and, yet they're still free and yet they're, they're still singing. Um, and here they are in prison with us. Mm. So I just looked at, hey, that's, that's how we are, right? Like we're scarred and deformed to the outside world. We're lepers to the outside world, but um, we could also be like a sparrow. So that's just how I looked at it. That's a very beautiful way of looking at things. And uh, throughout our conversation, even, even our first call together, I noticed that you have a, a wonderful way of seeing things. You know, you see the details that a lot of us miss. And I think if we look for those details, we can find the beauty around us, no matter what our circumstances are. So thank you for reminding us that when you look at, you know, at things like you looked at the sparrow and the razor wire, you see things uh, that uh, remind you or get you thinking about something um, that is not ugly, something that is beautiful and whatever you have. So, no, that's a great reminder. Is your book a, uh, is it a biography of your life or is it? It's a, it's a memoir. So it's written for uh, men that are doing a long or life-term sentences. Okay. That's, that was my original, um, you know, my dedication, for, uh, very first dedication is uh, to the men that I left behind. So it's written for, for men that are doing long lifetime sentences. And in it, I'm sharing with them, like, this is how I came to my own sense of freedom uh, years before I was paroled from my life sentence. Um, but it's funny because a byproduct of writing it for them, I've, I've been getting quite overwhelming feedback from a lot of people that have read it out here. And they said, you know, your book is more than just for people in prison. Like, we all live in prisons in some mm. way. Um, and your book has made me re-examine my own narrative and things I, I'm not taking personal responsibility for out here. So that's also been great to hear, great feedback 
Yeah, and just random, random people. Um, like just last week, there was a woman that uh, read my book, was so moved by it, and she said like it made her really it inspired her to even like challenge her own thinking. Um, and she goes, if this book right here is already making me, uh, moving me to to like uh, re-examine my own life like this, I could only imagine what it would do for men in prison. So she reaches out to me through my website and said, hey, I just read your book, this is what happened. I'd like to um, do a fundraiser to get more of your books into prison. Mm. So we put something together. Um, it was funny because her original goal was 220 books to go into prison, you know, 22 to signify the amount of years that I've been in prison. And then she got some amazing artists to, to also draw up some postcards to also include inside it. She ended up raising 400, enough to, 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 to bring 400 books into prison. And then she also decides that she's also gonna purchase another 110 to, to give on top of that. So I said, man, then how about this? And I'll, I will match all of that. So this would be like over 1000 human, uh, human beings that are incarcerated that we're gonna be able to get this book into. Hopefully it will spark some change for some people. So. Oh, I'm certain it will because yes, your book, it talks about people on the inside, but as uh, this reader uh, pointed out so accurately is that we all have prisons of our own making. Uh, a lot of people are living uh, as hostages to themselves. I have a book, uh, my, my first book was uh, called Hostage to Myself, in which we take ourselves hostage and the only people who can liberate us, as you have pointed out, is ourselves, you know, and, and that's what you did, you liberated yourself. If you had a message to share, well, and you do have a message to share, what would you share with people who are perhaps struggling uh, with their own identity, with their anger issues, or even with their criminal behavior? What would you share to these people? I would tell them they are not the worst thing that they have done. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I say it all the time is that I believe uh, all human beings are salvageable. And I think like, uh, I believe in the human capacity to change it, you know, through their choices at any given moment, no matter how far they've spiraled into something, you know, in my book, what, well, my chapter two, the very first sentence I said, I was not born a murderer. And, and I, and in realizing that in prison, I realized it was a long series of choices that got me to uh, think that it was okay to commit murder. But then in realizing that, I also realized then I could find my way out through making a long series of right choices from here on out. And that's right. just how I approached it. So I think, you know, just for me and for anyone else just struggling, like I think like, okay, yeah, you may be struggling, um, but now how do you make a choice today to make your life better incrementally and then tomorrow and the next day and then suddenly um, it, it becomes, it builds up its own momentum. That's, that's what I saw all around me mm. when I was in there. Yeah, and that's very true. Uh, first of all, it's, it's the awareness that you want to change. And that's, uh, that's a big one, you know, to recognize, to self-evaluate like you did in prison. Uh, there were a series of events that happened that made you examine yourself and examine where you were going. And although you thought that you may be in prison for the rest of your life, you still did something about that to improve yourself and to, uh, and to improve your circumstances and you really uh, evolved into who you are today. And I think that's a lot of 
people have to uh, recognize that sometimes when life is not going well, we just stop, we evaluate, uh, we uh, determine how bad we want the change. And if we want it bad enough, then we take those small steps that end up leading into big steps and gets easier all the time, which is what you've done. So, uh, you know, yours is a, a very remarkable story of how, although things can go terribly wrong, you can, uh, you can, well, you can admit where you went wrong, you can take full responsibility for what you did wrong, and then you can make a change. And you can make a change not only in your own life, but in the lives of other people that surround you. And for your book to get out there, a thousand copies, way to go, congratulations. Mm -hmm. I, I, hope it, uh, I hope it not only changes a thousand hearts, I hope it changes 20 times that much, if not more. Yeah. So, yeah. It's amazing how one story, one story can make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And yours, yours has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. So thank you very much for that. Now, how can people get a hold of you, Quan? Where can they go get a copy of your book? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, they could go right to my website to find me. Um, it's quanxhuin.com, but I know that might be hard for people to spell <laughs> out. So you could also just type in sparrowintherazorwire.com and it will point right to my website um they could also yeah they so they could get the book there or they could get the book right off amazon it's a sparrow and the razor wire and i will leave the uh, link in the bio uh, that i provide along with uh, with this episode so kwan thank you so much uh here here uh, isn't this interesting former hostage negotiator and detective talking to someone who spent 22 years in jail uh but uh you know and here we are fast friends and uh, I've had more, uh, you know, friends who had criminal backgrounds as well, because you're absolutely right. People can change and people can improve their lives and they can go on to do some incredible things as you have uh, yourself. You are a living testament that change can happen. And that, uh, as I said, right from the very beginning of this podcast, uh, let's dispel the myth that once bad, always bad. Juan, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient.